Forgiveness is a funny thing. It warms the heart and cools the sting. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and I'm a shit show, and I am not going to sugarcoat this shit, guys. I am I'm going through it. The past week has been so incredibly difficult. And I shared some about it in the shit show Saturday episode, but just more shit gets, keeps getting thrown my way. And it's been really hard. It's been really hard. But the bright side, the silver lining, the beautiful thing about all of this is that I'm really getting to witness the ways in which I have grown over the past five years in the way that I'm I'm handling the this experience and how I am experiencing this experience and the self-awareness that I have uh, on what's you know being triggered, those core wounds that are being triggered. And I am using the tools that I've accumulated over the years. And for as much as this fucking sucks, I 100% know that this is some really big transformation occurring. I know that this is more shit that needs to be healed. And I can clearly see how this move back to Florida is really about me resolving some shit that still needs to be resolved. And I know what happens on the other side of this. And I know that I am just shedding another layer that is blocking me from my highest and best self and my highest and best life. And I know that my higher power would not be putting me in these situations unless I can handle it. (sighs) Sometimes my head doesn't think that I can, but my true self within knows that that I'm okay and that This experience is of the highest good to me, and I just need to to ride this shit out. I need to just ride this shit out and use my tools and lean on my support and thank you all, all you shit shows, because truly, you're carrying me through this experience, whether or not you are in the Patreon or just listening, you're helping me. You guys are carrying me through this experience and lifting me up and letting me know that I don't have to go through this alone. And knowing that all of y'all go through this too. You know, we are all in this together. And we also are all getting to heal together. And how fucking lucky are we? Like seriously, truly, how lucky are we? This opportunity for such powerful transformation and healing that so many adult children never get the opportunity to do and spend 
their entire lives rooted in the faulty programming from their childhood. What a gift, what a miracle, what a blessing that each and every one of us is getting this opportunity to break the cycle, to heal. So that's that, guys. That is that. Uh, So today we are diving deep with Peter Tompkins. So he recently released a documentary. It is called Road to Forgiveness, Addiction Spares No One. Uh, So let's talk about forgiveness. To forgive or not forgive? That is the question for many adult children of dysfunctional families. Forgiving our family, forgiving our parents. Uh, Should we? Should we not? I guess it really just depends on what one's definition of forgiveness is. So for me, forgiveness does not mean that we are condoning what happened to us as, as kids or that we are giving our parents a free pass. Forgiveness does not mean that I am going to no longer acknowledge the aftermath of my childhood, the ways in which I've been hurt. Forgiveness does not mean that I'm never going to feel angry at that person again. Forgiveness does not mean that I have to have a relationship with the person that I'm forgiving. Forgiveness to me means that I am taking responsibility for my own recovery, acknowledging that I'm the only one that can do the work to heal. Forgiveness is the understanding of the generational nature of family dysfunction and how our parents are not bad people. They're sick people. They weren't intentionally trying to harm me or fuck me up. Now, some of y'all might disagree with that and that's totally fine. But, you know, my, my opinion is truly that they did the best that they could with the tools that they had. You know, was that good enough? Uh, not really. <laughs> but um, guess what? <laughs> it got me here. <laughs> got me here having my own podcast. So uh, I, I guess I'll take it. It got me out of accounting. So <laughs> got me out of public accounting. But before we can get to a place where forgiving our family is a possibility, I think two things must occur one of which being self-forgiveness. I don't think that we can broach the topic of forgiving our parents until we have begun our journey of of forgiving ourselves, of self-forgiveness. So I don't know if you guys know about this. So there is a book called The Laundry List, The ACOA Experience. This isn't the same thing as The Laundry List Workbook. This is actually a book written by um, Tony A, who like started ACA. But so he, there's a, there's a chapter on forgiveness and I'm going to read, um, he says, before we can move into this critical arena, before we can do healing work with our parents, there is one prerequisite, forgiveness of self. In order to forgive my parents, I had to start by forgiving myself. The logic is as follows. I unwittingly took on most of the characteristic of my parents. These behavior patterns and beliefs are all inside me. The traits I most disliked in them, I carry. I must accept, embrace, and work at changing these negative traits in me. Once I have neutralized them in me, I can move on to forgiving my parents for these traits and how they harmed me. It is difficult to forgive my parents' behavior if I loathe or deny that same behavior in myself. So that's just it, you know, and I feel this way. There, There's a part of them that is a part of us. And to resent 
them is to resent a part of ourselves. And it is through forgiving ourselves and finding compassion for ourselves that we are then able to find some forgiveness and compassion uh, for our parents as well. The other thing that has to occur before we really can experience genuine forgiveness is that we have to get all of the shit out. We have to get all of the feelings out, the anger, the sadness, the loss. So I just started reading um, this book by Pete Walker. It's called The Tao of Fully Feeling, Harvesting Forgiveness Out of Blame. It is all about forgiveness. Highly recommend it. I'll put it in the I'll put it in the show notes. But he talks about this concept of premature forgiveness. Premature forgiveness is false forgiveness because it is unsubstantiated by the recovery work that must take place for forgiveness to be emotionally genuine. And he talks about how premature forgiveness can be motivated by a few different things. So first being denial. So us denying truly really how much we were harmed or damaged during our childhoods or also being in denial of the ways in which we are still being harmed in our relationship with them. It could also be fear, fear of not wanting to go there. It's almost like a bypass that we will avoid doing kind of that deep work and really looking at that shit. So we just go straight to forgiveness. Or we feel guilty about feeling anger towards our parents because as kids, we were not allowed to express that, right? And so for many of us, because as kids, we couldn't blame our parents. We were dependent upon them for our survival. So it was safer for us to direct our anger and rage and resentment and blame at ourselves as opposed to them because we literally needed them to to stay alive. The other thing that has to occur before we really can experience genuine forgiveness is that we have to get all of the shit out. We have to get all of the feelings out, the anger, the sadness, the loss. Now, let me be clear here, okay? What I'm not implying is that you uh, sit down at the at the Christmas dinner table <laughs> on uh, on this weekend and lash the fuck out at your parents and say every single little thing that you've always wanted to say to them your entire life. We do this process uh, separate from them, okay? They're not involved in this, uh, getting these emotions out. And so one way that we can do this, which Pete Walker talks about in this book, The Tao of Fully Living, is called angering out blame. So he says, angering out the blame is a term I use to describe safe, harmless expressions of blame. Angering out the blame typically begins with the decision to allow old memories of parental ill treatments into awareness. As these recollections emerge, we then imagine we are standing before our parents, blaming them for the ways they hurt us. We can do this out loud or silently in the privacy of our own minds. There's a variety of techniques commonly known as gestalt or psychodrama in which survivors can enact confronting their parents in the past. Safe and potent releases from old hurt occur when we imagine ourselves blaming and stopping their abuses. Many of my clients report experience great relief 
after role plays in which they denounce their parents' unfair behaviors. Many are simultaneously shocked and delighted to hear themselves angrily exclaiming, no, and that's not fair. One of my clients experienced a very profound release when she performed a role play in which she was a judge in a courtroom trying her parents for being derelict in their child rearing duties. After calling them to account for a host of injustices, she found them guilty and punished them for their cruel selfishness in exactly the same ways she had been punished as a child. And another thing that we can do is write a letter, write a letter to our parents expressing all of our hurt and anger and sadness and all the shit. And no, this is not a letter though that we <laughs> that we actually provide to them. Forgiveness, it's, it's not going to be a, a linear process. I don't think it's, there is no um, destination or, or end goal. We are going to vacillate between a place of forgiveness and unforgiveness. Is that a word? Unforgiving, unforgiving, unforgiveness. Vacillate back and forth. And the hope being though, that as we continue our recovery journey, the amount of time that we are in the place of unforgiveness will uh, diminish over time. Now to each their own. Some of us uh, will be able to work through our shit and get to a place where we can have a healthy and happy relationship um, with our families or I guess a relationship that works for us. However, others of us are only going to be able to um, experience forgiveness from a distance. Despite all of the healing work that we do, uh, we may never get to a place where we can truly have a happy and healthy relationship with them. And he says that there are three, at least three conditions that could cause this. First, our parents continue to treat us with a lack of respect and this makes trust and openness impossible in their presence. Secondly, our parents are no longer abusive, but we still feel deeply trepidatious around them because they have expressed no remorse about their past hurtfulness. This leaves us unconsciously contracted in fear that their rage will suddenly awaken and scourge us. Um, <laughs> uh, thirdly, our parents are no longer actively abusive, but their self-centeredness and lack of a genuine interest in us makes us feel as hurt and alienated as we did in childhood. So it's no one size fits all, guys. We're all going to have our own journey. This is all going to be ups and downs. What is right for one might not be right for another. And um, a lot of this is just really trusting the process and really just doing the footwork and letting our higher power take care of the rest. <sighs> guys, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, how about we move on? <laughs> how about we, what are we going to do? How about we get the fucking show on the road? But first, a few things. Number one, I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members, my newest shit show party pirate peeps. Okay. Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you get to connect with a pretty amazing community uh, who are doing the damn work to heal and who have pretty great personalities, in, in my opinion. It is also where you can say, hey, Andrea, 
I really appreciate all that you're doing. I'll be honest, guys, a girl will take as much help uh, as she can get right now, okay? Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you to these fine-ass, fine, fine, fine-ass shit shows. Loretta, Stephanie, Riley, Jordan, Paige, Paula, Amber, Jesse, Lori, Mary, Summer, Iris, Aaron, Megan, Catherine, Johanna or Johanna, Lisa, Caitlin, Deb, Michelle, Lauren, Mary, Melissa, Joni, Kara, Jane, Corey, and Selena. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How about the rest of y'all go do what they just fucking did. Okay, so go to patreon.com slash adult child. Do it now. You can also give me a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok at adult child pod. Of course, you also need to give me a five star rating on uh, on Apple and Spotify. That is a requirement. That is actually a requirement to listen to this podcast. So if you don't do that within the first 30 days of... um of you listening to this, you, you, you actually won't be able to listen or find the, um, the podcast ever again. It's going to just like be, you know, completely erased from the internet. It'll be as if it never existed. (laughs) So you don't want that to happen, right? Uh, and then last but not least, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this month, which is Eleanor Health. So we had on Dr. Nzinga Harrison, a few uh, weeks ago. And Eleanor has a variety of services helping both those suffering from addiction and those who are impacted by addiction. They have locations in Massachusetts, Texas, Louisiana, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, and Washington. They also offer telehealth for all of those um, states. And I, I like what they're doing because it's not a one size fits all. This is not a cookie cutter um, treatment center like many are. And um, I've had personal experience with that. So go check out the show notes for information on all of their shit. Thanks. Change my mind and stay. But we never did too much talking anyway. But don't think twice. It's all well, it was right. my pleasure to, to introduce a filmmaker. So we have Peter Tompkins. He has a, a new documentary that's out on, is it just YouTube or do you have it elsewhere? It's just on YouTube right now. Um, and it is called Road to Forgiveness. Addiction spares no one. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good title. Oh, why thanks. Did wanna, why did you want to make this? Oh, wow. You know. I just thought the story, my my parents' story and, and our story and our family is more interesting or, or it has a lot of interesting ups and downs and a very tragic story about addiction and about how it affects not just the addicts, but the, the kids that are, grow up in that atmosphere. And I thought it would be a good way to maybe, you know, instead of being an adult child of alcoholics meeting where everyone talks about it, maybe show that it's okay to talk about it out in the open and because there's most of us keep this a secret. And I kind of want was hoping other people would see it and would empower them. At number one, make them feel like they weren't alone if they're not part of the ACOA group. And also to give them strength to maybe stand up and say, Hey, you know, this happened to me too. It's a pretty powerful message that you wanted to focus on that forgiveness aspect of it. Yeah, I I think what was important for me in recovery 
and I'm far from being recovered. But I think for me, finding forgiveness for my parents, because I harbored, even though my mother got sober and she did all these wonderful things for me, I still harbored this this silent resentment towards her and my father. And I found it to be like, why am I feeling like this? But I started wondering, what was their life like? What I started to question, like, what did they go through? How did they get there? And and once I kind of found my answers, even though I don't know if they're the correct ones, there there a lot of them are theoretical or I'm surmising. It helped me go, oh, I get it now, and it kind of made things clearer for me because you know there's a piece of each of them in me, and I can't. In my mind, I couldn't find peace in myself until I found peace about them. So, so I kind of wanted to. I, I did a lot of self exploration through my art, through my music, um, and just laying around, so to speak, thinking about them and like, boy, they grew up in this era and they they did this, and can you imagine what they were going through? Because everyone always treated my dad like he was a monster. Believe it. Throughout all the years, it took me until my adult life. I went, "Oh, my mom was an alcoholic too." It, it didn't even occur to me because she would always seem to be the rational one of the two of them. But then one day, I went, "Wow, they they were both alcoholics, and they both drank like crazy." And it wasn't just my dad, but she always made him seem like he was a monster. You know, oh, he, she called him an ogre and all these horrible names. You know, while she's half lit. <laughs> so I think through that discovery, I realized that my perception of reality wasn't really accurate. There were two drunks in, in, you know, in my family, but also I also had to analyze their lives prior to meeting when they both met and then after. And it's just, I had a lot of epiphanies. Uh, I guess you are several epiphanies about their lives and mine that helped me see things clearer. In order to forgive ourselves, I think that it is so crucial that we find some sort of forgiveness for our parents. But I, but at the same time, too, I think that people will get confused and think that forgiveness means giving our parents a free pass or forgiveness mm. means that we can't feel angry about them yeah. or forgiveness means that we have to have a relationship with them. And none of those things are none of those things are true. Yeah. And there's somebody that wrote to me on Facebook and they're like, hey, I'm sorry, dude. I want nothing to do with my parents. And I, and I said, you know, I, I'm not asking you to approach your parents. Uh, I'm not telling anybody what to do. And that was something that, like, what what made me think of this is I was thinking about my mom, who was the, quote, the rational one of the two of them. She let things go so bad, I thought to myself, how could she, how dare she? You know, how, how did she let us become homeless? How did she let dad spend all the money? Well, if you go back to that era, I mean, she was raised... Now, I'm just surmising from that era from the 1930s and 40s, she was raised to go out and find a man and get a husband. And, and the man back then was supposed to be the provider, quote, dominant one and the breadwinner and make all the decisions. And I thought, well, maybe she just felt helpless. Maybe she didn't know what to do. I mean, back then, a woman couldn't even get a loan. She, I don't think they could even get a mortgage on their own. And there were no jobs, you know. So she probably felt, I'm guessing, trapped. And didn't know what to do. She had no support. And, you know, you think about, I, I have this rage, though, and then when it occurred to me, wait, she didn't do this in, intentionally. Mm -hmm. Maybe she felt she had no choice. But realizing that made me 
back off quite a bit from how I had perceived reality or what I perceived it to be when I was a kid or, or my perception of my childhood from an adult perspective, if that makes sense. I love how you started the documentary we were talking about. It was the relationship stuff. Like that's how it showed up for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were speaking my language. It was like oh, everything yeah. that you said in that very beginning. I was like, yep, 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 yep. But let's let's first talk about how you got there. So what so how old were you when you guys got evicted? I was four. You were four. Yeah. And do you have many memories like prior to that? Yeah, I have a few. I don't have a lot, but most of them were in the house I mentioned in the film. Um, it just being very dark and, um, you know, real fractured memories of watching TV. Some of it's disturbing. Some of it's not. I mean, like they used to lock me in my bedroom. They had like an eye hook on the outside of the door. And I asked them why. And they said, well, my bedroom was inside the master bedroom. So it was like a sunroom that they had converted into a bedroom. And allegedly I wouldn't sleep at night. So they, I would crawl downstairs and go, go down in the living room and hide behind the furniture while they watched Johnny Carson. And the story is that they got pissed at me. So they decided to just lock me in the bedroom because I wouldn't go to bed. So there's memories of things like that. <clears throat> that I go, what? You locked me in my bedroom? Are you all fucking nuts? <laughs> I used to sneak in that room with a butter knife. And I would stand up on a stool and, and you know, un unhook the hook outside on the outside <laughs> of the door so I could get out. And they'd be like, how'd you get out of here? And I said, well, I, I snuck a butter knife in there. <laughs> so I was always thinking like. Very resourceful. Uh, yeah, yeah. As, as, so, but yeah, most of the memories from there are not. I can't remember mom and dad drinking back then, but I remembered it just being very poor and feeling very dirty and just um, having no food in the house, things like that. And, it, you know, that's those kind of things stick with you. Yeah, because I remember you talking about that, the dream you had about the, what was it, like a hamburger? Yeah, oh yeah. And I've, I, I'll i never forget that. It just was, um, and I don't remember many dreams. Like I, there's a few dreams in my life I, I'll always remember, but that one really stands out. Three or four years old, and to give you a little background, we didn't have any food in the house, and mom would, for lunch, she would take me out into the living room and we would just sit on this old tattered oriental rug and she'd bring out a plate of saltine crackers with and put butter and jelly on them. And that would be my lunch. That's the only food we had. And I just, I just remember always being hungry. And so I remember one night having this dream that I was in the dark and in the darkness, this hamburger came appeared floating in the darkness and I reached out to grab it, to eat it and it, and it faded away. Mm. So it was, I, I'm assuming it's because we didn't have any food. Like, I don't remember looking <laughs> in the refrigerator. Safe, safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't remember it being like we had no food, but I know there must not have been, you know. And, and I remember late on in life, my mom would say, I don't think you know how bad things were, were because I was so young. And I don't, I never asked her what she meant, but I honestly don't, didn't really it didn't occur to me that we were homeless until I was in my 30s, 30s wow. or 40s. I went, I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, you know, well, so we're living at this guy's house. Oh, wait a minute. We were homeless. <laughs> like, I didn't even register because they, they made it seem like we were camping. 
<laughs> you know, a vacation. Who I guess vacation? I'm a vacation dad's uh, 65 for galaxy. <laughs> well, you, yeah. So you, so essentially like someone shows up at your door, you, they start taking all of your things. You get kicked out of the house and then yeah. you guys went and stayed with the neighbors, but was it only just for a few hours? Well, it, see this, some of it is what I've heard now. My sister yeah. told me years ago that, and some of it I remember. I remember we drove down the street and there were these neighbors and they had these two huge sheep dogs. And, you know, I'm four years old and these dogs were always fighting. And I was horrified at these dogs because they jump up on their back legs and wrestle and I'd be crying. And mom, dad convinced them to let us stay there. And I, and I don't know this other than from what my, my sister told me is that I they kicked us out when mom and dad were stealing money and drinking all their booze. They caught them, you know, broke, they broke into their liquor cabinet. So we were out in the street. And then I think from what my sister has said, we drove off to some suburb east of Cleveland and we, we got into a motel one night and they kicked us out of there because we couldn't pay for the next day. So we, we were in the car, we were in different people's houses. And then, um, that's when we ended up at a neighbor's house, um, not a neighbor's house. Your dad's uh, we, old fraternity brother, yeah, right? Yeah, we, we drove way off into the country, and we were at this house, and, and really nice house, like a brand new house, um, ran style home. And I, I guess from the story that is the guy wasn't home. He was on vacation with his wife and his kid, and the, this is back when people left their doors unlocked, especially out in the country. Mm-hmm. And we just walked right in and made ourselves at home in this guy's house. And we lived, we, we set, it, set up shop in his front room, which was his TV room. And, uh, you know, I, I equate it to being like Eddie and Christmas mm-hmm. vacation, you know, there's the dog snots. We had, we didn't have the dogs with us and neighbor took the dogs, but we had, you know, me and my sister and my brother and my mom and dad living in this guy's family room or whatever it was. So yeah, we we wandered around from what I'm told, and we ended up in this guy's house for um, a couple of weeks in the summer of 1970. <laughs> we got home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they got home, and yeah, you know, I, I just can't imagine you know walking into this house and seeing a, my fraternity brother <laughs> camped out. I mean, I, a family I, of five camped in your living room. Oh yeah, and the funny thing is, is I ended up joining the exact same fraternity my dad was in, in, in the exact same college, in, you know, in a high university. I was going to put that in the film, but I cut it out because I didn't want any legal ram battles with with the national fraternity. But yeah, I mean, they came home, and and I think my dad had to somehow. My dad was a salesman. So he's basically a bullshit artist, and he he basically talked his way into letting us stay there for a while. And, um, you know, I just can't even imagine. I actually called this man. I called him like 20 years ago, and I found out where he lived. He had he didn't live in the same house anymore, and I thanked him. And mm-hmm. I tried to talk to him about it, and he's like, well, you know, what else could I do, you know? And um, he was very nice about it. Um <laughs> But he, he must have been a, a decent guy to allow all of us there for a couple of weeks. So I guess he owned um, a, a house. His bank, the bank he was yeah. president of, owned a house just about a, two miles from his house. And it was an old abandoned farmhouse. And um, I guess if I understand it correctly, he hired some people. But this old abandoned farmhouse, 
it didn't have any electricity or water. It had no furnace in it. It didn't have, uh, some of the windows were busted out. The roof was in terrible shape. I've got a picture, one picture of it that remains. It's in the film. But I guess this guy said, oh, you can live here. We can get it fixed up. I mean, and my dad's fraternity brother. So he, he got this crew of guys to come in and paint the, paint the house and fix the windows. It was just a mess. It was a, it was just literally like a shack that used to be a boarding house for farmers back in the 1930s and 40s. And I don't think anybody had been in it in 25 years. This is what I was thinking about when I thought about my mom. I thought, here's this. My mother was kind of um, come from money. She wasn't wealthy, but they survived the um, depression in pretty good shape. They had money from uh, the oil business in Pennsylvania. Both her parents were college had college degrees. Her sister was educated. They came from a nice suburban background. And here she is. She went from that in 1949 to 20 years later, she's living on the street in this farmhouse. And I can, I, I was wondering how, how devastating it must have been for her to be living in this dirty, filthy. Did it existence. have electricity? It, it, it did. It didn't when we first got there. It didn't even have windows in some of the rooms. But then they got the electricity hooked up. They got the water hooked up. We didn't have a furnace until, well, I'm not certain when, but somehow somebody installed one of these little wall heaters about, you know, 18 inches by 24 inches, 24 by 18 inches in the wall by the front door. But it didn't heat the whole house. This was a two-story farmhouse. So they eventually got, somebody put an oil furnace in the in the dining room because the basement was shot. There was no, I think it was just a dirt basement. You couldn't get to it from the inside of the house. And they put in an oil furnace somewhere during that first winter there. And um, so eventually we got you, you know, utilities and heat and all that stuff, but it took a while. Did you ever, did you ever um, know, meet your um, maternal grandparents? Like, were they aware of the situation that you guys were living in or were they passed or what? Do you know anything? Um, No, my, both of my mom's parents had passed away. My mom's mom had died, I think, in 1967. And my mom's dad died when she was probably 18 or 19 or something like that. Wow. So they've been gone for a while. Talk about when your dad went to treatment. I've had that experience. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, of them not lasting very long after yeah. they get out of rehab. <laughs> and I've learned a lot about rehab since. Like, I don't think he was ever in there long enough to do him any good because I don't think we could afford much. But um, yeah, dad, dad's drinking had gotten so bad. Um this is around what age for you? Oh, I'm sorry. This is around the age of seven. Okay. And um, he had been drinking and, and we had been kicked out a couple of different places. It seems like we moved every time the rent was due. Were you aware so, that like drinking was an issue or was this not something oh, yeah. that you learned until in hindsight? No, no, no. I was, I was very aware of it. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't not be. Um, dad would get so drunk that he would, you know, he wasn't a violent man. He would pass out on the floor. I mean, one Christmas, he went to change the star on top of the tree. It's, it's almost sounds comical. He pulls the whole tree over on top of himself. He's laying on the ground with the tree on top of him. Um, you know, I can laugh about it now, but back then it was like, oh crap, what the fuck just happened? You know, you're, you're, you know, he, he would go into withdrawal. Um, he would try to stay sober for a weekend like my sister would come home from college with her husband and he would try to stay sober and then one night it was like christmas eve he just let out this this 
scream and he fell he fell off his chair into the floor and he was having convulsions and blood was coming out of his mouth and we didn't have a telephone we couldn't afford a phone so my sister and i'm 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 seven my sister at the time was probably like 21 or something we go running down the hall pounding on doors in the apartment to call the cops and it turns out he had had um a withdrawal from alcohol um is that what's called alcohol withdrawal yeah yeah he was going into delirium tremors yeah and from that point forward he started going into He'd been in a treatment. He'd been in a hospital a couple of times. Um, he had fallen at work uh, when he had one of these seizures and dislocated his shoulder on a, a curb, one of those curbing stones in the parking lot. So, so these were things that I couldn't, um, you couldn't ignore. Not know about, but it, yeah, he started going to rehab in 1973. My mom went in as well. Um, Did they go in at the same time? From what I remember, they did. They both went in. Well, and that yeah. What had happened is my my dad went in and my mom went in, and then my mom's sister took me in, took my brother and I in to stay for a week or two, and that was like the winter of seventy three, something like that. And we both stayed there with my cousins until mom got out, and then dad stayed in, and then then he went back in. I, you know, a lot of it's kind of jumbled in my head, but I, one time he went back into rehab, mom and I were home and then they cut the, they cut the heat off in our apartment. The the landlord was trying to get rid of us and I think he shut off the heat so we would leave and I ended up getting pneumonia, but mom and I were sleeping in the same bed, you know, under a bunch of blankets and she had this old tattered raccoon fur coat that she got when they had money that one of our dogs had chewed up. So it's it's like in shreds and we're, we're laying under this fur coat and blankets and I got pneumonia, was in the hospital. So the winters of 73 and 74 were, were the primary times my dad was in rehab and mom went in once or twice and then um, she, she didn't, as I say in the film, I don't think she bought into AA. She just got sober on her own. I'm kind of all over the road. I know you originally asked me about dad's rehab, right? Yep. Well, that last time. Yeah. I mean, he went in, he started going in, in 73. He was in and out between 73 and 74 to a couple of different places. He was in a psych ward with the VA hospitals in the VA hospital psych ward. This is the kind of funny story because he tells us this story when he gets out. He said he was in his room watching TV, but he didn't have a TV set in his room. <laughs> so, Back in the 70s, the government was testing um, LSD out on alcoholics to try to rewire their brains. And I wondered if they slipped him a couple of tabs of acid. And that's why he was watching TV in his room. Or or it was delirium tremens or something like that. But And then um, he got he, he kind of sobered up. He got a job working second shift for um, a torpedo manufacturer. I mean, here, here's a guy that was working the top. <laughs> He was in the top sales rep for uh, the Cleveland Press, and he's he's fallen down. He was working. He went down. He uh, was working in the park system, picking up trash, and then he's working in a torpedo factory, allegedly doing uh, quality assurance. And um, I didn't see him a lot after that because by the time I got home, he was at work, and then when I went to bed, he was coming home. So if he was drunk, um, you know, I didn't even see it, fortunately. But um, he got a little bit sober, and then. A little bit sober. <laughs> I guess he was he was kind of stable, but it, it started to escalate again. And I think it was 1977, end of 77, he went into rehab at this really big place. 
it was supposed to be state of the art. Yeah, when you said that they said that there's like an 80% recovery rate. Yeah, yeah. That's not real. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I hear that now. I'm like, wait a minute. That can't, that's got to be total bullshit. <laughs> and yeah, he got out and um, he do was you know gone where, for, I wonder if, do you know what it was? Where it was? It was in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Aliquippa. Who the hell is I, that? I don't know. I think it's in Western PA somewhere okay. near Pittsburgh. And it was, you know, it was sold to us as being one of these, you know, bef- this is before the Betty Ford Clinic and mm-hmm. Eric Clapton's clinic out in the the Bahamas or wherever his is. But um, Anguilla. But he went for like three months or something like that. And, you know, I look back on it now and I, I didn't know about addiction. I didn't know how hard it was to recover, but we just assumed he'd get home, he'd be fine. Or I did. He, and he came home and, you know, this van pulls in our driveway and... um you know, he always wore one of these tan long trench coats that all the men wore back in the seventies, and he looked great. And uh, he he got home and walked in the house, and he was home maybe an hour. And he said, "Well, I'm going to go out for some bread and some milk." <laughs> Mom and I just looked at each other, and we're like, "Okay," because his sponsor told us you can't do anything, you can't stop him. Just you just got to let him let him be, because you can't change him. And uh, he left, and we're just sitting there going, "Oh my God!" You know. What what's going to happen? So he walks back in the house like forty minutes later, and uh, he was smashed. He had oh. been drinking, and uh, within probably six months of that occurrence, mom filed for divorce. She kicked him out of the house. It was snowing outside, and he was wasted. And he went out and crawled into his Ford Pinto wagon and fell asleep out there in the freezing cold. And his sponsor came and took him away, and. Uh, I think from that point forward, I don't know how quickly this all happened. He was living on the streets and in halfway houses, and he was in—he had really bottomed out. I don't know if you'd go much lower than where my dad went. But, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't even mention in the film. There's just not enough time, and I didn't want to drag it on for two, three hours. But there was a time when the agent, federal agent showed up our front door looking for my dad. And this is just like in the movies. I, at the time, I was like five or six years old. And these guys show up at the door with the long trench coats and fedoras. And they got a, you know, it's not like in the movies where they have a tiny little badge Badge. holder. This big leather thing. I remember showing it to my my mom. This big federal, you know, leather badge holder. He's like, you know, we're federal agent Smith and Johnson is Harry Tompkins here. And um, I guess my dad had been passing bad checks. Hmm. In bars in the east side of Cleveland, and uh, I, th- either the bar got raided or or the guy turned my dad in. I don't remember which. I remember the bar was owned by a mafia, uh, Italian mafia guy, and Dad had pissed off the wrong guy, I think. And I don't. I still have the papers. I have the copy of the check somewhere here in a box that they showed him. They showed her. Um, but Dad had been in all kinds of trouble. Stuff that I probably don't even know about. So he was eventually murdered. Yeah, you know, um, after he was homeless, he, he had gotten arrested a couple times for DUI. Um, he had been in jail for about six months because he had been arrested probably a bunch of times. And I, I honestly, I lost track of him from about the age of 14 onward. I kind of, he was kind of like out of sight, out of mind, kind of good riddance kind of thing in my mind because I didn't want to, you know, be embarrassed. I was wrapped up in what kids would think at school, which is, I think, back that's so ridiculous now. But, um, but yeah, he he got um, 
the story is that he had met this woman through program through AA and they moved in with each other. And since this time I've learned you don't date anyone from program when this is probably a good example. Well, why. Not in your first not in your first year. Yeah. So so they moved in together and I guess she had what's called graveyard love because uh, he had decided he was going to leave her. He came into some money. My uh, One of his aunts, my great aunt, died and left him like 2500 bucks or something, which was a, a considerable size of money 35 years ago. And I guess he told her, I'm, I'm leaving. So while he was sleeping, like that night, she she took a gun and she took a 25 automatic and shot him in the back while he slept. And then killed herself, right? Yep. Yeah. And that's, uh, I guess, I guess. If, if she couldn't have him, no one would, which is kind of funny because I, I, he must have he must have been pretty special to her, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, much. <laughs> no, I, this, uh, that's just it. And um, mom, mom had seen the two of them driving around town, and it was kind of funny. She'd say, "Oh, I saw, I saw your dad with his girlfriend," you know, and and she'd be driving. She said one time they drove, you know, down the town square and. His girlfriend was driving and, and mom was in her car at the top of the street. And as they drove by, dad slouched down in his seat. So she, he wouldn't, uh, mom wouldn't see him, she thought. But somehow she knew about, you know, the two of them. Okay. So now let's talk about you. Okay. <laughs> so when do you, is there like a pivotal moment for you where you really feel like the impact of your childhood really started to come to the surface? Yeah, well, I don't think I was aware of it. I mean, I look back on it now and I know when it did. It was when I started dating as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, in high school, it was it was torture. I mean, remember the first girl that I liked, and let's say her name was Betty. But, you know, I remember Betty just Bud? being Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Betty Betty the bitch, no. Betty Bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I had this huge crush on this girl and you know, I'm a 16 and she was an old, she was an older classmate. So she agreed to go out with me. I don't remember how I asked her out, but we went out and I was just like madly in love somehow with somebody just on one date, you know, it's just like. Can't relate. Can't relate at all. No. <laughs> What's funny, I you know, I thought it would be like in Happy Days or I, I, everything I learned about life was through TV and movies. So I thought I'd be like Ron Howard in Happy Days and go ask somebody out and they'd fall in love in a half an hour and get married, Here go to the go. dance. Yeah. And this girl, we had a nice time, but the next day in school on Monday, she didn't. We walked past each other in the hallway. And she didn't even look at me. She didn't even talk mm-hmm. to me. And I was like, "Oh, what? What happened?" What? And I was like talking to my friend, and he's like, "Well, don't worry about it. What's the big deal?" And it was just one date. And I'm like, "How can you say that? I mean, this is this is Betty, you know." And, and, <laughs> and she was playing hard to get. And I went home crying to my mom. She's like, "Well, get over it. You know, she's just playing hard to get. It's all a game." I'm like, "Game." What do you mean a game? Why there's no games in romance, you know? Why are there games? And so that's it started there. And then it's like we take that first experience with us and it stays with us, right? So it's like oh, yeah. in this relationship, like you're subconsciously anticipating that the same thing's gonna happen, right? You're gonna go oh, on yeah. a date and then that person's not gonna be they're gonna abandon you. Yeah. And then we manifest that into our reality. Yeah, pick people who are going to do that. Oh, it's crazy. The abandonment thing with me, it's just, it's painful. It's, it's, it's physically, it's almost physically painful. It's not like if I were to break up with somebody, I'm fine. As long as I initiated it. Yeah. But if somebody breaks up with me, I'm just like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm on the, you know, about to jump off a cliff or something. 
And it's the weirdest thing. It's like if I have control of it, like I was engaged to somebody um, 25 years ago, and, and I knew it wasn't the right thing. I knew it wasn't. And I, I called the wedding off two, be- two weeks before the wedding. Mm. And I was just like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so I, I, we, you know, I, we talked and she talked me back into doing it. So we picked a new date. And then I said, no, I can't do this. I, I really can't. This isn't the right thing. And then she just stopped talking to me, completely stopped talking to me. And, and I couldn't get her to return some of the stuff that I had stored at her apartment. And I was freaking out. And now, you know, I didn't stalk her or anything, but it was like, oh my God, why won't she talk to me? Just talk to me, you know? And this huge abandonment. This is, I think that's when I first noticed how bad I was. It was really, it got really dark. And so I guess the only way I can put it, and you, you may understand that, but mm-hmm. I just was losing it. And, um, and everybody listening right now can understand it too. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's, it's awful. And, and the people around me didn't know what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. They just like, well, get over it, you know, just go find somebody else to go out with or, you know, go have a couple beers, which, you know, I did. That's, I think that's when my drinking escalated was, uh, it wasn't when my mother died. It was when this young lady and I broke up and it wasn't her fault. I just was alone and I, a lot of stuff happened, but I was alone and I had no one to talk to. And I, I was just downing beers and the doctor had me on Prozac and I didn't know that you can't just stop taking Prozac. Because yeah. if you if you stop at cold turkey and don't wean yourself off of it, it's like going through a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just like, well, fuck the doctor. I'm just going to stop taking this stuff. I don't <laughs> need Prozac. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting in the dark in my apartment with beer. I'm drunk. I'm just like suicidal. Uh, and you know, and the, and the psychiatrist I had would just be like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have gone off of the Prozac. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> but. And that's, I think that's about 25 years ago is when I started doing a lot of self-analysis and going to ACOA meetings and um, Al-Anon meetings and AA meetings and <laughs> any any acronym or whatever. I was I was desperate to try to get healthy and, and get my head straight. After my uh, fiancé I mentioned and I she and I broke up, I started dating a variety of women. And I started to see that a lot of these ladies weren't healthy. <laughs> I started to step back instead of falling in love going, wait a minute, this is, there's a lot of red flags here <laughs> and I should probably get out. Like there's a girl I dated for almost two years and I started to question, healthily question her, her mental stability when she told me she was in on TV. She said she was, she was in TV and she said she could speak um, Chinese. So, so she would say these things to me in Chinese. And I'm like, okay. So so we were saying, I love you to each other in Chinese. This is really sad. <laughs> so she was saying like, undato. She said, that's, I love you in Chinese. So I'm like, undato. You know, we hang up the phone, undato. So I, one of my coworkers at work was Vietnamese and he spoke Chinese. And he said, hey, do you know what, how to say I love you in Chinese? And he's like, I don't know, something. I'm like, oh, he goes, what is undato? He goes, I don't know, what is that? I go, isn't it how you say I love you in Chinese? He goes, no, that's gibberish. I don't know what that is. Like, oh, no. So I started looking into the girl's background and some of the people she said she was related to, famous people, and it was all a lie. And I went, oh, no, she's got delusions of grandeur. And I know enough about psychology, but I was so like desperate to be in love. I went, 
oh, I got to be with this girl. And then when I found out she was wacko, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I got to get out. <laughs> and um, I was healthy enough to know I got to get out of here. I got to leave this one, this girl. And there were a lot of women like that that I met that I started to kind of have my crazy radar on. I always started going that relationships with my parachute on. Mm-hmm. Not not out of fear of abandonment, um, but fear of, but of knowing like if aren't things aren't right, it's time to bail. Mm-hmm. I, I stopped giving people second and third chances. And when I met my wife, I, I was testing her like, I mean, see if she was crazy you know and everything she's always been she's the only person that's been like consistent with me well let's be honest i mean if she's with you she's a little bit crazy yeah yeah (laughs) well she she'll probably hate you for saying that but i i think she's you know she i'm a lot to deal with i think and i think (laughs) she she, she's very patient so (laughs) how has the poverty shown up the hunger have you had, do you see anything that comes up around food? Because I would imagine those experiences of being homeless, of not having food to eat, mm-hmm. that those would be very, very impactful. Oh, yeah. Money money is a big issue with me. Um, my friends all my life thought I was cheap or thrifty. And I, I have a horrible time with money. I cling to it. Um I have a really hard time with spending it. I have huge guilt trips when I, even if I spend anything over like five, ten dollars, I'm like, oh my god, what have I just done? Um, so it, it's it's ingrained into me. See, I have this huge fear that I'm going to end up homeless. Like my dad, when when he was my age in his early his mid fifties, he was homeless. I'm like, well, this could, you know, you make one, you know, in the back of my mind, I said, okay, my wife kicks me out. I'm going to end up on the street. You know, I'll be living in a van down by the river or something like that. So that those kind of things are at the back of my mind constantly. And I'm very, um, I don't know what the word is about money. Not, I'm very, not paranoid about money, but I'm very, um, concerned about it. You know, I, uh, when I was single, I, I was very careful about, what I spent and how I spent it. And, you know, I wasn't going out and buying, I was buying economical cars. And if I got anything on the car that was like considered an upgrade, I feel guilty about it. Oh my God. You know, it's another $10 a month on the payment. What am I going to do? So that, I think that part, that part of my childhood has shown through, you know, cause I'm determined to not end up you know, on the street or homeless or something. I, I don't know. Talk about that moment when you had the realization, like, oh, my God, I'm my dad. Oh, my God, I turned into my parents. There's a long thing leading up to it, but things in here in Ohio when I was a kid were so depressing that when I was 25 and I, or 26, when I went through all this with, with my former fiance, I got really depressed about being in Cleveland. It seemed to be all of a sudden it was where I love to be. And then all of a sudden it looked very ugly and unattractive. And a friend of mine had moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And I went out to visit him and I went, Whoa, this is so different from Cleveland because it's sunny all the time. There's all the women and the men out there are gorgeous. Everyone's in good shape. There's just, you know, <laughs> and I went, oh, I've got to live here. This is the antithesis to Cleveland. So five years later, I, um, uh, had an opportunity to move there 
And I had had a goal for five years to live there because it was going to be the answer to everything. I was going to move to Phoenix and get away from the ghosts in Cleveland, get away from the gray skies where all the bad memories were. And I had met, I had just met who is now my wife, and I convinced her to move out there with me. And I got out there and I went, oh, I hate it here. I was there like two years, and my wife went begrudgingly, but um, she seemed to enjoy it as much as she could. But I was just like, oh, I hate the heat. I hate the people. Everything that I thought I was going to love about it, I hated. And I started to drink. It's because you hated yourself. Yeah, I hated myself. I hated the the bad decision I had made to move out there. I I was... um, Feeling very sorry for myself, myself, I started working these corporate call centers. And one day I was home. You know, I'm I'm a closeted drunk because I'm ashamed of my drinking. So I, I've, it's never gotten in the way of my work or relationships. But it, it's it's something I used to medicate myself. So I was heavily sedated. <laughs> I was very drunk one day at home. My wife was at work. I had a day off, and I just was laying in the bed looking up at the ceiling and it occurred to me that I'm just like my dad. I went, Oh my God, I'm home drunk. You know, I'm on the verge of being, you know, unconscious. I was so drunk with the spins and, um, went, Oh my God, I get it now. I kind of in a brief moment understood what it was like to be an addict because I didn't consider myself one up to that point. I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. But I thought, wow, this has got to be what it was like to be both my parents. I had these epiphanies where I understood, I guess, what it was like to walk in their shoes, even though it never really got as bad as as what had happened to them. But I understood the addiction process. I understood how making bad decisions in your life can just screw everything up. I mean, you, you, you moved to the wrong city, and we were stuck out there because the, the market collapsed, the housing market collapsed. We couldn't get out of there. And I was sitting there beating myself up, and I thought, wow, you make one wrong mistake, and it can just screw everything. Your life will be fucked. And I'm, you know, I just felt like I had this connection, this understanding of, you know, my mom married the wrong guy. My dad probably married the wrong girl. They, 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 you know, their lives went into these crazy directions that I know my mother never expected. I don't know if my dad cared one way or the other, but my mother. I think she thought she was just going to live happily, happily ever after in the suburbs, you know, with a gorgeous husband and with a nice job and just, you know, be the happy homemaker wearing heels and a little apron, bringing him martinis. <laughs> and that's what they dreamed of back then um, with the 2.5 kids and a Labrador retriever. But I, you know, I had the same thoughts and I went, wow, you know, especially for my mom. I said, wow, I understand, you know, I, I get it. You know, you, you make one wrong mistake and, and your whole life can go off, right off off the rails. And it's, uh, it's in some ways, it's hard to get back or if not impossible to get back. This thing of like one bad decision can screw you forever. I think that's almost like trauma-like thinking, right? Because mm-hmm. like, is that yeah. really the reality of the situation? No, not really. I mean, maybe there are like, like you shoot and kill somebody or, but generally speaking, it's yeah. not. It's like the lack of control or like feeling that powerlessness that like you can just fuck up one time and you're screwed when that's yeah. not really true. Yeah, it's horribleizing. It's it's generalizing. Yeah, catastrophizing. And, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And um, if I hadn't moved to Arizona, I wouldn't have grown. Mm-hmm. That's just I, it. 
all of my bad choices have turned out to be like right according to plan. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. It's like it opened my eyes up to you were going the wrong direction anyway. I benefited from it because it helped me grow. I never would have grown in Ohio if I had stayed here. I would have just lived stewing in my own juices for 57 years and, and been stagnant, I think. I think Arizona helped me, kicked me in the butt and wake me up. I think that this is a really big pivotal shift in our healing and a message that I really try to portray in this podcast is like how, like you said, making that choice allowed for you to grow. It's like having that shift in perspective that like, are all these bad choices or mistakes or pain are actually just all according to plan and all like a very necessary part of our evolution as humans and growing. And mm -hmm. I really embrace if I could go back and like, I honestly wouldn't change those decisions or choices in my life. Cause it's brought me to exactly where I am now, which is where I know it's exactly where I'm supposed to be. No, exactly. And I think one thing I've learned is it made the things that I, I clung to or cling, what's right grammar, cling, clung, clung like, um, like in the film, I was huge. Clang. Yeah. Clang, clang. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, obsessed with the Beatles, the Beatles, the rock group, the Beatles were, were my escape. They were, they were not my, the bug, not the Betty yeah. bug. No, no, not the Betty bug, <laughs> the, the fuzzy headed uh, Beatles. Yeah. They were somebody or a group of men that I, you know, idolized and I looked up to. And then as I've gotten older, I went, whoa, wait a minute. These guys are all messed up. <laughs> At least John Lennon was like kind of screwy. These are not <laughs> people that I really should be idolizing any more than I would idolize my father, you know. And but but they I I believe I guess what I'm getting to is I I I lived in a dream world where I believed in media. Media was my shelter where I went to run and hide. So I believed in Ron Howard and the Fonz and, you know, John Lennon and all these people that were mythical up here. But then I, I woke up one day and went, wait a minute. Okay. They got me to this point in my life. And, and now it's okay to let go of them. Now it's okay to try to be me and, and not try to be me based off of them. Cause I had identified my personality was based off of, actors and musicians and um celebrities and so i think what happened was i had this pivotal moment where i went you know i realized i was living in a dream world mm -hmm. based off of celebrities and and i quote it hollywood mm -hmm. just hollywood types and i think it was a healthy moment and i realized it's okay to step out of the shelter of hollywood Mm -hmm. And kind of go off in the world and, and experience it through my own eyes. Because I was definitely living in a dream world. You're dissociating. You had to. I mean, that was how you survived, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was how you survived. And, and I, especially when it came to love. You know, I thought love was just going to be just like in the movies. You know, I, you know, when Harry met Sally or I, life is so different. But that's okay. It's okay that... Life is different. Love is different in real life. Um, and, and nothing happens. You can't fall in love, meet somebody, fall in love and get married in half an hour like they do in the TV shows or in a, or a two hour movie. It just, it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so how did you find out about ACA? Oh, wow. Um, 
I was probably 26 or 27 years old. My mother had just died. She died when I was 26, and I was in the library in my town, and in the lobby on the bulletin board was this flyer that said, you know, adult children of alcoholics meeting tonight at 8 o'clock at the Pilgrim Christian Church. I'm like, what? Adult children of alcoholics? What the hell is this? And, you know, I went to the meeting, and it was really wild because I didn't know there were other people like me. Because, mm. I, I, you know, I grew up with all these kids that looked like they had the perfect life at home. They all had new cars, new houses, and furniture in their living rooms and stuff. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I must be the only one out of 400 kids that has any problems at home. And I found out, you know, I'm in a church basement with 30 other people of all ages talking about similar things. So talk about some pivotal healing moments in your journey. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I've discovered is that addiction, most people don't understand addiction. And and I'm an addict and it's it's really hard. You can't, I used to think if I could just say the right words to my dad. Mm-hmm. Oh, dad, stop drinking. He would go, oh, I never thought of that. Maybe I should stop drinking. And it, it's not that simple. I felt that way for years that there was going to yeah. be, I was going to be able to say the exact right thing to get yeah. through them. That was a big part of my healing journey too, was like letting that go completely. This illusion. Oh yeah, it's 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 really is. There's nothing simple to it. There's not there's not an easy way out. And I found that to hate my parents, I can't I can't tell what other people do, but I found a lot of recovery and, and healing when I let go of that baggage of resenting them or hating them or wondering why they did this, why they did that. Once once I got past that, it was almost like I had this huge trunk filled with lead you know, clasped to my back and I let it go, it it, it made my journey forward a lot easier mm. to find that, to realize that my parents were human, to, to realize they, they had done some things that at least my mother wasn't proud of, and I know that they suffered from it. Their lives were not easy. But for me, what I've discovered is that, you know, things aren't quite as bad as you make them out to be in your head. And if you just press forward, and I mentioned in the film, it's kind of like being on the beaches of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. I might might be dating myself a little bit there, but you just got to get off the beachhead because, you know, the bad guys got their guns zeroed in on the beach. And if you can move forward in your life, uh, you you can achieve a lot if you face your fears, if you face all this stuff. And a lot of it I face through music and writing songs and a lot of self-analysis going to psychologists and counselors and because I wanted to get better. I didn't want to be this paranoid, reclusive um, guy who was shy and afraid of myself. Now I have, I have more self-confidence than I've ever had. I can talk to people. I don't necessarily like people. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of still reclusive, but that's more of a societal thing. Now I, I, I don't like, feeling like I've got to get into a fight every time I drive out in my car and go to the grocery <laughs> store because somebody is being a jerk. But but I think the thing I found is that if you pursue things and you um, move forward, you'll find that things aren't quite as bad as you think they are in your head. Mm-hmm. That's what I have found. I found if you tackle things, you'll find your way out. But if you just sit at the bottom of the abyss and just never try to get out of it. You're just going to be in the dark all the time. Well, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your bravery and being so open and honest. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I've got to say at the beginning, I really appreciate you. 
having me on your show and thank you so much for watching the film yeah, it means a lot to me you could have done better but i don't mind well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, I know that you did. Uh, thanks again to Peter. You can go check out the show notes for links to hit to the documentary. Um, what else? Not really much else. Um, I'm pretty proud of myself for my first part in the beginning because right as I um, sat down to record this, I got a text message that uh, rattled me some. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, great. This is great. Sent me kind of into a trauma response a little bit. Um, but I calmed down and I think I did pretty fucking good. <laughs> pretty fucking good. Oh, God. Man, oh, man. Thank you guys for, for being here. Truly. Truly. I believe in myself because you guys believe in me and you carry me through. And I love each and every one of you so damn much. You know, it's hard. Um, there's a part of me, you know, that doesn't want to share um, when I'm struggling. Because I feel like, oh, all these people are going to think... I'm a fucking fraud. Like, oh, you have this podcast. Why aren't you healed? And I know that's fucking bullshit. But that's what the voice in my head tells me sometimes. But here's the fact of the matter. I mean, I've been going at this for five years. I mean, I hate to break it to anyone who's like just learning about this stuff. But this is going to be a long road, guys. Like, this is going to be a long journey. Uh, we're not going to just have this all tidied up and in a pretty little basket with a bow uh, in, in a few years. It's going to be a journey. But a journey with a lot of beauty and grace and love and joy and good things as well. But just some, some shit and some fucking growing to do. Some fucking growing and healing to do. I'm done. I'm done dissolving this shit. Resolving, dissolving. <sighs> I was like, really, God? Like, what else are you going to throw at me? That's it. I'm ranting. I love you all so much. Next week, um, who the fuck knows? Not sure. Uh, but regardless, it's going to be really good. <laughs> it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be super awesome. Super normal. Super excited. Be out of here. It's going to be a good day. I promise. Yeah.